finally a Pioneer episode. I just I was so glad when Star City added it to their, their catalog. Same. Feels so good. Uh, Gottlieb said the same thing I've been saying for like months about the this just drop standard for Pioneer. Yeah. Said it on the podcast they were doing. Pioneer's just a much better format. Well, yeah. Standard is rarely good. And uh, yeah, I definitely don't have a ton of context for uh, like an updated understanding of Pioneer. So you're you're going to have to like be the knowledge provider and I will be the question asker as much as I can. I can do that. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 227 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, with me is Lee McLeod. Hey Lee. Hi Chris. And we are joined today by a special guest, the first of hopefully many of our... Are you going to get mad at me if I call these the our Dexpert ex- episodes? <laughs> so today we have Connor Mullally joining us to talk about some Pioneer Lotus Fields. Connor, how are you today? Hey there, Chris. Hey, Lee. I'm doing really well today. How are you guys? Solid. Happy to be talking about magic. I know Lee's happy to be talking about Pioneer. Uh, yeah. Best I, format? Yeah, it's, this is my favorite format. Like, I, I really enjoyed Modern Horizons Modern when it came out, uh, but it's gotten a little stale for me at this point. Even though it's changed a lot, like in terms of metagame, the sh- the decks and cards people are playing have just like not really changed since those initial few months. So Pioneer is fresh and new, and I like it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. the The format where you could where you get to play Magic cards is kind of uh, the way that I I view it. So, kind of the idea behind these episodes is, you know. Lee and I play Magic when we can and have fun with it, but without a live tournament series kind of focusing our efforts, we've gotten a little more and more removed from the staying, like, up to the razor's edge of competitive decks and, you know, what's the 14th and 15th sideboard slot in Modern Phoenix or whatever is not, you know, I'm not always that up to date on the stuff that we want to talk about. Uh, but we do still love talking about Magic, and one thing that we do have is a lot of friends still playing Magic and very good at it. So kind of want to leverage that, and people who are still really dialed in and working hard on decks and being successful, we want to get them in to talk about formats and to talk specifically about decks and archetypes that they've been seeing a lot of success with. And I think that's that can be a really cool way to just like dive down and get a a deep focus on a topic and you know come up with some information that might not just pop up during conversations about Magic the Gathering. So we wanted to get Connor on because he's had a ton of success online with the Pioneer Lotus Field deck. Uh, I know you have a bunch of uh, challenge and PTQ top eights, five with Lotus Field. Uh, I know that we've seen you top eight some paper events uh, with other decks, uh, SEG top eight, NRG top eight, 
And uh, we also appreciated you making yourself very available to stream your matches to us when we were covering the Mana Traders tournaments. It was very helpful to have somebody reliable who we knew would be playing a good deck and playing well to put on. So a personal note of appreciation to you for that. But welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Those magic tournaments were, uh, or the, the Mana Traders tournaments were a lot of fun, and I'm really excited to play some Pioneer in them this month. But yeah, yeah. Thank you for the, um, you know, the kind words of introduction. We've seen you have a lot of success with Lotus Field specifically in Pioneer. We haven't talked a ton about Pioneer lately, so before we get too deep into the deck, do you want to help us just get kind of like a rundown on where Pioneer overall is at? If you just want to like give us a little bit of a feel for the metagame like if you're if you're going to play the challenge this weekend for instance absolutely like what would you expect to play against like roughly right so given um my status as a student i'm not someone who's in the trenches every day playing leagues playing challenges and so leading up to the ptq about a week and a half ago that i made the top eight of um, what i did was i reached out to milan bayana who some of you may know, 16-year-old who is just very, very good at magic, um, consistently at the top of the Magic Online leaderboard. And he told me that the metagame that he was expecting was going to be a lot of mid-range decks. He said that Blue Red Phoenix, Jun Citadel, or Jun Sacrifice, and Jeskai Ascendancy were going to be the three most popular decks. Now, in the past, Pioneer's been a little bit more of a combo format. Right now, it's a little bit more of a mid-range format. And two of the best mid-range decks, which are Blue-Red Phoenix and, well, I guess Jeskai Ascendancy is a combo deck, but it often plays out like a, it's it's slower, it's less all-in, and they can play a fair game plan with their Omnaths. They're built around the Delve cards, Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise, and in Phoenix's case, Temporal Trespass. And so we were looking at decks that weren't going to be winning very quickly. You know, they weren't going to be killing you on turn four. Most of them were probably turn five, turn six decks that are trying to cantrip, interact, and ultimately they are really powerful, but they're trying to interact with the opponent a lot on the board, especially Jund and Phoenix. And Lotus Field takes advantage of that by not playing creatures for people to remove, not playing planeswalkers for people to attack. Your only permanent that matters is a hexproof land. So exactly <laughs> tough. Yes. How dare you insult the great arboreal grazer? <laughs> <laughs> Point of Fatal Push at Arboreal Grazer. People usually leave it in, actually. It's, it's worth a lot of damage to Fatal Push a Grazer. <laughs> it is. And then some of the other decks that are a little bit less represented right now but are still important in the metagame are Burn, which since um, the release of the most recent Innistrad set, Crimson Vow, is now even better against Lotus Field than it already was with um, Cemetery Gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. Gives them an 8th or 5th through 8th Eidolon effect in the main deck. And then Black-White Vampires has also adopted some new cards from Crimson Vow. And that's really a metagame choice to attack Blue-Red Phoenix, from what people are saying. People say that Black-White Vampires is able to be really mid-rangey, trade one for one with all of Phoenix's threats, but then have Champion of Dusk to draw you a lot of cards. Yeah, and it's then got Edgar import- and the new Soren too, for the same stuff. Oh, I didn't realize. Like, yeah, they, the they play the new, the new okay. Edgar and uh, the new Soren just to like rake in the cards after they've traded up everything. Mm-hmm. And then some other important decks are Winota and um, a Green-White Angel Company deck, which is trying to assemble the Book of Exalted Deeds <laughs> plus a Mutavault to make it so that you can never win the game. 
a little bit more efficient than activating <laughs> Faceless Haven and trying to book it on the same turn. A little bit. Four mana is indeed less than six. That's weird. I haven't actually seen the uh, the Angel Company deck in action. That's that's interesting. You know, I'm generally not like a deck hater. I don't have much room to like be like mad about a deck existing. But any deck with angels and collected company is just like always the least fun 60 cards I've ever seen. I personally like to play against it a lot more than I like to play against the other premier collected company deck in the format, which is Spirits, because mm. angels yeah. cannot be sacrificed to counter my spells. <laughs> That's pretty fair. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. So given that that metagame with a lot of mid-rangey stuff, a lot of removal spells in the decks... That does seem like a decent place for a deck that doesn't play to the board at all. You can really only interact with it with, I mean, counter spells and Thalia's or something like that, uh, or killing it as fast as you can. And uh, obviously, you know, performed reasonably well, and you were able to take mm -hmm. it to a top eight, so not a bad call for the weekend. No, yeah. The more mid-rangey Pioneer is, and the more the mid-range decks are trying to go over the top of one another the better a deck like Lotus Field is going to be, just because in game one, nobody really interacts with you. And those mid-range decks often, for example, Vampires and Jeskai Ascendancy tend to beat up on the more aggressive decks of the format, like Burn, mm -hmm. which are natural predators to you. The mid-range decks will just give you lots of time to set up, and by the time you get to turn five or turn six, it doesn't really matter if they thought sees you or if they have one counter spell. You're just able to play through that, and... With the um, with the Fey of Wishes granted um, wish sideboard, you're usually able to interact with them just enough so that they can't execute their game plan fully against you, and then we can just go over the top of them. So you've been playing this deck for a while now, and I don't know exactly like the points of evolution of the deck. I know obviously there was a point in like original pioneer the format mm -hmm. where underworld breach became a card <laughs> and then this deck was completely bonkers until that card got banned and then it was pretty tame for a while after that ban uh, the deck is a little different now i i think pretty much universal adoption of the emergent ultimatum package and i'm not sure exactly like what other little changes have come on over time but if you have any thoughts about sort of the evolution of the deck uh or the way it's adapted to the format then i i think that would be pretty interesting well let's yeah let's go from this way so i, I imagine when people think of lotus breach they are thinking of the the underworld mm -hmm. breach or the lotus field deck i guess they are thinking of the underworld breach version because that was when pioneer was mostly like in vogue and mm -hmm. then it's faded off over time and people are just like getting back to it now so what what's new with the Lotus Field deck, like what are the cards people are playing? What are the strategies they're going from since they're not just trying to tome scour themselves out anymore? I do miss the days where we were able to tome scour ourselves out. I think that when we had the big three combo decks um, in Lotus, Inverter, and Heliod Ballista, those were some really fun times. And that's not really a place that they let any other formats stay. And so I liked that. Um, kind of over time, the evolutions that have happened were right after Underworld Breach, the big strategy of the deck was to use things like double cast, which um, was a fork to, we were trying to get up to 14 mana cast granted for omniscience and then use omniscience to draw your whole deck. Now, double cast on its own, not a very strong card. And we did move away from that. Um, later that year, around September or October, Caleb Shearer made the discovery of probably the biggest discovery 
since the Underworld Breach Ban appear into the Abyss. And this is a card that I've talked with, about with a lot of people and something that you know not everyone really sees the power of this, but for seven mana, you get to draw half your deck. And in a deck where your life total doesn't matter, that's just incredibly powerful. And so if you can ever get to nine mana, which is enough to peer into the Abyss plus cast a Hidden Strings afterward, you're just going to win the game 90% of the time. If you can only cast it on seven mana, then you get to palm a perfect seven and win next turn if they don't burn you out. It's been the biggest addition to the deck recently. There, There is one drawback of the peer into the abyss, though, which is that you have to look at this art every time that it's in your hand, and it is uh, it's the oppressive art. Is art terrifying. <laughs> it's it's the face your opponent makes when you have nine mana after casting peer into the abyss. <laughs> yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> they just barf up another copy of their own face, yeah. I was recently looking into buying magic art for somebody, and the artist who does this was also doing a piece that... Um, I was looking at for them and I was like, why would anyone want to buy a large framed copy of Pier and Divis to hang <laughs> on their wall? Like <laughs> I've probably cast the card more than most people, and that's just terrifying. You can't just look at that every day. Just in your kitchen, like you wake <laughs> up and make your coffee while you're looking at Pier into the Abyss. <laughs> no, some of the black cards are just yeah. Ugh. It's still <laughs> it's still very good. It's worth the nightmares for sure. Sure. <laughs> yes. I, I understand that. So it's not just Peer into the Abyss, though, as the like gigantic expensive spell package now. Uh, it is an emergent ultimatum deck at this point. So we we got you know a little more complicated picking up one of the most powerful strategies for a long stretch of standard um, in an emergent ultimatum package. Yeah, that's right. And full disclosure, emergent ultimatum is something that I'm still not entirely sold on yet. Um, there's some people who I talk about the deck with. Kane Reinhardt, very good player, streamer, likes just putting three or four copies of Peer into the Abyss into your deck instead of emergent ultimatum, because ultimatum does mean that you have to play um, an omniscience in your main deck, and it's not always the easiest to cast just from seven mana, because Lotus Field can't mix and match colors. You have to tap it for three of each um, color that you're tapping it for. But so far, I've been impressed with it, especially because the format right now is in a place where there's a lot of Thoughtseize decks going around. There's Jund. I'm sorry, I've got MTG Goldfish up here with the metagame breakdown. Which is probably not super helpful because they're all uh, listed by color. So you've got they red really deck, are, black yeah. deck, black red deck. But all the Jund varieties, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, you've got Vampires, you've got Jund, and you've got Red Black, which... I'll try to beat you by casting Thought Seasons and by casting copies of Go Blank. And so usually you would beat those decks by um, having Balagad Recovery to just inf keep infinitely recurring your card draw spells. Mm. But because of Go Blank, your graveyard's all, not always very stocked up. And so we want cards that can just do the thing on their own. You just cast them and then they're able to do something because a lot of times those decks will, will get you to a point where they're not presenting the fastest clock but you don't have a hand, and so you just have two turns or three turns to top deck something. And sure. you want to make sure that your top decks are as high impact as possible. And so if those decks aren't very popular, and instead people are playing more Mystical Dispute decks or Burn decks, I might move away from Emergent Ultimatums and more toward more Peer into the Abysses. But for right now, it's it's a card that I've been happy with when I've played it. And one of the neat things that I like about Lotus Field, that you kind of like mentioned there, is that this deck is pretty resilient to Thoughtseize effects. 
because mm-hmm. you always have that ability to top deck up here or top deck even they pour over the pages and just kind of win the game from there sometimes like it's very resilient to hand disruption in a way you wouldn't think just looking at it as a combo deck yeah absolutely all of your best cards just draw more cards and so it's just so so redundant like a lot of your cards just do the same things so yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed with that. I know that one time on Mana Traders coverage, like you mentioned, Chris, Collins was watching a match of mine with Underworld Breach, and he said, you know, Connor's going to die in two turns. I've seen this movie before, though. He's going to draw pour over the pages, and then <laughs> you just draw pour over the pages. That finds another card draw spell, and you're just off to the races. Yeah, and and I mean, you can't, under, you, you can't overrate the fact that... Uh, Lotus Field is immune to Thoughtseize. That is a land card. You can't make. You can't be made to discard it. And your first several turns, the entire point is just get Lotus Field into play, copy it with a Thespian stage, and then draw whatever cards. And most of your cards are really good from there. And Thoughtseize does a terrible job at stopping you. You know, it can get Sylvan Scrying, but it can't take mm-hmm. those lands out of your hand. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the coolest things. And that's something that I actually wrote about in the guide that I just wrote for um, as, as a primer for this deck is that Lotus Field is basically Tron. When you're looking at opening hands, you're just trying to get Lotus Field plus Thespian Stage into play. Nothing else really matters. And like you said, Chris, having that be a little bit more resilient, having your best cards be resilient to discard so that, you know, your opponents might have to take something a little bit worse. You know, like you said, sometimes they'll hit your Sylvan Scrying, but a lot of the times they won't is, is really powerful. You were talking a little bit about, hey, for this metagame, people playing mid-range decks, people playing a lot of removal spells, uh, Lotus Field was a good choice at this time. But you have also played Lotus Field for a lot of the format. Is this a deck that you generally should choose as a metagame choice, or is it a top-tier deck that you're pretty happy to just bring to a tournament whenever? Um, Or is that a little bit of an artifact of, hey, I... I'm not a full-time magic player. My highest win percentage is co- going to come from playing a deck that I know how to play well. You know, what's our our what's the place of this deck in a metagame long term? So I'll say this. I do not think that Lotus Field is ever going to be the best deck in Pioneer. I think that there's usually going to be something more powerful to be doing or something just more more proactive, better better tuned, something like that. Um, less exploitable, I guess I'll say, because Lotus Field is exploitable. I would say. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it too. But I do think that in the right metagame, if you if you get the metagame right, then it can be the best choice for a given weekend. So I think that week if you're just trying to play the Pioneer Challenge on Sunday week in and week out, it might not be the deck for you. You might want to play the Is It Phoenix, which is more tunable for any metagame. But if you're someone who is just trying to select the best deck for a given weekend and you're going to put a lot of effort and time into figuring out what the metagame is going to be, then I think this is a really good choice for you. Gotcha. I'll also say that I play it a lot because I think the deck's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And so if you enjoy this type of strategy, this storm kind of thing, I think it's it's a really fun deck to play as well. Yeah, and from my experience, anyone who is likely to... Like, you're not going to convince anyone to play this deck that isn't halfway inclined to. Like, that's just not how people operate in Magic. Right. <laughs> no, it's not. People want to play their creatures and attack and block and cast removal spells. But if you do enjoy this kind of deck, you know, we have never shied away from the fact that, like, that is a form of equity. Both, you're more, you're more likely to win with a deck that you enjoy and, like, fits with your player 
profile archetype or whatever and also just like why would you go play a tournament with a deck that you like hate playing that sounds terrible so playing a fun deck is its own reward absolutely so we talked a little bit about you have experimented with emergent ultimatum some people disagree a little bit on it but you're leaning towards hey this is a good choice uh what other like specific things about the build of the deck is there anything you do a little differently from other people are there things that people are trying that you're not sure of what are the kind of like alternate ways to put this deck together or like flex slot choices that you think are interesting any any like of the customization options especially in the sideboard because i know this being a granted deck there's a wish sideboard you can do i've seen so many different variations on the sideboard there's a lot of weird cards, alternate win conditions or jukes or mm-hmm. bullets people play. Like, so any of that you can include in there too. Also, Absolutely. how many actual sideboard cards do you play versus <laughs> how many wishes do you, how many wish targets do you think you actually need? Absolutely. So I think that right now the biggest um, slots that are kind of in flux are the two copies of Galvanic Iteration that are new. And this is a card from one of the recent sets that's been doing very well in Standard and in the um, Pioneer Phoenix deck as well. And what we determined was it's really, really good against the blue decks, where you're trying to cast two copies of Pour over the pages on the same turn, trying to cast two big spells on the same turn to power through counter magic, because a lot of the times Phoenix will bring back three Arclight Phoenixes and just be holding up two mana, and you're like, okay, I've got to beat you know, one counter spell here. And so having Galvanic Iteration as a way to cast two big spells for less mana has been really valuable against those decks. It gets a lot less valuable against the Thoughtseize and Go Blank decks where they're stripping your hand and attacking your graveyard. And against those, you want really high card quality. So I would say that those are some of the bigger... um, That's a slot that changes a lot with the meta. Um, and in, in a meta that might be a little bit more grindy or have a little bit more burn, I think I would lean toward more Fae of Wishes just to make yourself more redundant, have more payoffs. And against burn, a lot of times you just cast Fae of Wishes as a 1-4 to block. And so I think that Galvanic is really good in the blue meta, and more Fae of Wishes, more granted is better in a meta that's not quite so blue. Something that we're trying with the emergent ultimatum being one of our payoffs right now is that lets us play less dig through time, which I know dig through time is one of the most powerful cards in the format. We love the delve spells, but not playing quite, quite so many dig through times lets us play shimmer of possibility over strategic planning, which is really helpful when we're making keeper mulligan decisions, just getting to see one more card off your cantrips is really valuable. Dig through time is extremely powerful card, but mm-hmm. this isn't a deck that fills its graveyard very well. You mostly just want to keep your cards in your hand for as long as possible until you're going off. And Dig Through Time works the opposite way, where it helps you set up cards as long as you've played stuff, mm-hmm. which is why uh, I know in old versions, people just cut it entirely. It didn't come back until uh, Emergent Ultimatum got added to the deck. Because this is not a deck that's casting considers and expressive iterations and stuff like that. It's a It's a deck that's doing work to get lotus field into play and then it casts a bunch of spells but it's it's not you know that card velocity doesn't kick in until later on in the game yeah exactly and then something you see in the phoenix decks or the jeskai ascendancy decks is that they might fill their graveyard cast a treasure cruise and then a couple turns down the road fill their graveyard again cast a treasure cruise again 
when we cast a dig through timer, when we cast a pour over the pages, we're trying to win the game on the same turn. And there's not time to fill up your graveyard again for another copy. Sure. Looking a little bit at the sideboard, there are some cards that I'm definitely never leaving home without. And I'm actually sorting this out on Magic Online right now to like <laughs> figure out what's my wish board and what's my um sideboard, yeah. What's my actual <laughs> sideboard? So you never board in the win condition, which in this iteration is approach of the second sun. Sometimes that's Jace Wielder of Mysteries, and honestly you're kind of looking at six in one hand and half dozen in the other. There's not a whole lot of functional difference between these two spells. The reason that I have Approach of the Second Sun in right now over Jace Wielder of Mysteries is that you don't have to draw your whole deck, and so it's less clicks. It just takes less time to win the game. That's fair. I never board in Alpine Moon. I never board in Nine Lives. I never board in one copy of Thought Distortion. I always leave one copy of Thought Distortion in my sideboard, and I almost always leave in leave a copy of anger of the gods or whatever other sweeper in my sideboard i'll board in ugin if i need to have an alternate win condition against a deck but with five color niv mizzet being on the downswing right now no one is really cranial extracting your fey of wishes and so ugin usually stays in the sideboard and then we almost always leave peer into the abyss just so that fey of wishes in our main deck is a card that can kickstart the combo when need be pretty much everything else can be boarded in gotcha cool and when you are boarding what are your like general cuts in various matchups sure so depending on what the matchup is you can usually shave a couple of arboreal grazers unless they're the very fast fastest matchups where you really need to be blocking the burns the winotas the spirits where you're really just trying to race uh, so in slower matchups, the Juns, the Izzets, you can usually go down a couple copies of Arboreal Grazer, especially because against the blue matchups, you're going to be bringing in Mystical Disputes, which is the card you want the most of. I'm usually pretty happy to cut a copy or two of Shimmer of Possibility. I'm usually pretty happy to shave a Balaged Recovery. Um, depending on the matchup, sometimes you don't really need Omniscience. You post-board will have... Emergent ultimatum piles that just don't need omniscience. For example, I'm going to keep going back to Is It Phoenix because it's the most popular matchup. A lot of times, getting a thought distortion in your emergent ultimatum pile will be just as good as winning the game that turn. Or if you really need the mana, then you can just get a hidden strings. Gotcha. So I'm happy to cut down on omniscience. Sometimes I'll cut the dig through time. Really, just like to make um, make trims. In the non-blue matchups, I don't really love Galvanic Iteration for the reasons that we discussed earlier. The cards that I'm never, ever cutting are Hidden Strings and Pour Over the Pages. Yeah. You want to draw those every game. You want four in your deck every single time. And Sylvan Scrying as well. Never cut down on those three spells. Everything else you can usually just trim. You don't usually cut things wholesale except for the Grazers or the Galvanic Iterations. Have you seen any builds of the deck that have you seen any card choices and stuff that you're just like, that's terrible. That's wrong. Like, like, I don't know why you would do that. Cause I know any, every time that I get like really into playing a deck and I'm just like, you know, grinding with it because it's fun. And then mm -hmm. I'll see builds come out and I'll just be like, why? Cause I'm, I'm so like invested in my build and the choices that I have made. And then I'll see lists get posted and just be like, that's, 
so obviously terrible in ways that I wouldn't have understood without putting like dozens and dozens of hours mm -hmm. into the deck. So to be completely honest with you, no, but mm -hmm. that used to be me with um, Emergent Ultimatum before I played more than five games with it. I used to just okay. see that in deck lists and think like, oh my God, this is terrible. And I didn't really get how to cast it because I kept thinking I just have two Lotus Fields in play. And if I cast a pour over the pages, I have seven mana, but I still can't cast my seven mana bomb. And I didn't really stop and take the time to think about, okay, you need to think about what happens if I draw an emergent ultimatum off this pour over the pages? What happens if I draw it off of this dig through time? And so recently I've started thinking to myself, you know, what would happen if I draw my triple green double black spell? And so mm -hmm. instead of tapping my Lotus Fields for blue blue to cast pour over the pages, I'll make blue black and just leave a couple of black mana floating just in case I need it. Other than that, I can't really say that I have. I know that some people have been trying the, the card Wish lately, which I think is two in a red. You may cast a card from your sideboard. And that's definitely cool. And it's just something that I haven't really tested. And I think that there's a lot of cards. I love to try things in this deck. I tried a lot of um, Burgy God of Storytelling when that first came out. And that card was really cool for a little while. Mm. But I'll be completely honest with you and just say that I don't spend a whole lot of time looking at deck lists i spend more time looking at the tournament results page and just seeing what's the expected metagame and kind of trying to tune my deck for that um sure that's definitely something that i could stand to do more of is see what other people are trying worked out well for me when i decided to give ultimatum a try but i can't say that i i'm ever blown away by someone's bad choices now well i i think you're like mostly right anyway because what i do is i just look at all the tournament results and that gives me both an unexpected metagame and I get to see different builds people are playing. Yeah. And usually filters out by the successful builds, right? Because it's the tournament results. Yep. And, and most of the time when I, like a number of times when I've been like, that's obviously terrible. And then, you know, I'll actually try it and be like, okay, I, you know, that's probably fine. Like usually your gut reaction to yeah. something being terrible is just like your biases. <laughs> kicking mm -hmm. in so or you don't quite understand how to play with a card yet like original ultimate because i've had that experience a lot <laughs> yeah it's like, like this is this is clearly bad and then i play with it just to try it out and i'm like oh this is not that bad i just can't play the exact same i was you know last week or whatever yeah i just didn't adapt i didn't change my game plan to fit the new thing mm-hmm well, kind of like on that note of the emergent ultimatum thing where you do have to adapt your gameplay in order to account for the possibility of drawing this, what, green, 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 black, black, blue, blue spell. Yes. You know, what kind of, you know, tips and tricks or things to keep in mind? Like what what stuff are you keeping in mind? What cool plays or like important play patterns or whatever would you like point out to people who are picking up this deck? or trying to get better with this deck? So I'll get to the cool things in just a minute. <laughs> what I'll say first of all, if you're just getting into this deck, mulligan more. Um, the single biggest thing that I can, the single biggest piece of advice that I can give you for your win rate is don't be afraid to go to five cards. Don't be afraid to go to four cards. This is Tron. If any of you play any modern, you're trying to assemble Lotus Field plus Thespian Stage or Lotus Field plus a Vizier of Tumbling Sands in play. 
you'll draw spells eventually, but you need your mana to be online before anything else happens. Some fun things that I like to do <laughs> are a really cool trick is if you're playing around counter magic and say that your opponent's playing something like blue-white control, and you know they have Dovin's Vita when you only have one payoff, but you have more mana than you need. I love to just hidden strings, tap your lands down. Or if I have a creature in play, hidden strings, tap your creature in your land, put hidden strings on my creature, attack, cipher, and then you know, got to get some damage in, got to maybe untap one more thing that I thought was necessary. There's just a lot of really cool, tricky stuff that you get to do with hidden strings. I knew that line of text, so I've done that play before. But if any of the listeners don't haven't gotten through the whole text box of hidden strings, because it barely matters, uh, after you like tap or untap two things, you can attach it to a creature, kind of like an aura. And then whenever mm-hmm. that creature connects with an opponent, you get to cast it for free. So if, like what Connor was saying, you can tap their things down in your pre-combat, attach it to your, your Fae of Wishes, hit them for one, then untap your lands. It's really cool. Yeah. It does have to deal combat damage, so unfortunately not a combo with Arboreal Grazer, but, you know. <laughs> not a combo with the Sloth, unfortunately. Be a little too sick. Mm-hmm. One thing that was kind of a big level-up moment for me was realizing that our cards are modal and even though we may have them do one particular thing most of the time look for other weird stuff and a big moment for me was when someone told me cast your vizier more often and the matchups that i see the biggest dividends with this in are the blue matchups the blue white controls and the blue red phoenixes of the world where number one they're trying to cast mystical dispute against you and having vizier in play just counters a mystical dispute because that's that's three mana right there and then i also found that it gave me a lot of percentage points in those matchups when people are trying to cast narsets against me and having something that can attack narset or having something that maybe stops an opponent from minusing with narset down to one loyalty is really really valuable so cast that card more often sure cool yeah that makes a lot of sense can you go into emergent ultimatum piles because i imagine a lot of people don't actually know what those are because it has to be all monocolored cards you get three of your opponent picks one of them that you don't get so what's like what's your pile what are the deck building considerations in there that's right so the typical pile that i go for is with emergent ultimatum usually it'll be the last spell you're casting in a chain and so usually you'll be out of mana afterwards Depending on your hand, let, let's just say that I, I'm on a board where I cast a Hidden Strings and I have just enough mana to cast my ultimatum and I don't have any cards left in hand. Usually what I'll go for is a copy of Omniscience, a copy of Peer into the Abyss, and a copy of Pour Over the Pages. And what that pile does is that it makes it impossible for your opponent to give you a pile that doesn't both draw cards and go up on mana. If they don't give you the Omniscience, then you're untapping two Lotus Fields and drawing half your deck with Peer into the Abyss. Usually I think it's correct for an opponent to not give you um, Peer into the Abyss. And then, because usually you'll be more bottlenecked on cards than on mana at that point. And so if they don't give you Peer into the Abyss, then you have an Omniscience in play and you get three more looks at more gasoline. That's the standard pile. Um, If you decide not to play Omniscience, you can just get Hidden Strings instead. That's pretty easy. If you have mana left over, a lot of times I like to go for um, a Fae of Wishes and just cast Granted and get 
a payoff or the approach of the second son from the sideboard. Something really cool that I noticed is that I think that Emergent Ultimatum is very good when your opponent has a Narset in play. Now, obviously, those games are very difficult to win, but it is a way to see more cards. And so if my opponent has a Narset in play, I've gone for Dig Through Time plus Shimmer of Possibility plus Granted, and that just, or Fae of, excuse me, Fae of Wishes. And then that lets us keep churning through our deck because if there's a Narset in play, we can likely make as much mana as we want. We likely just need to find more stuff. Mm-hmm. And so getting cards that can churn further through our deck. Um, those are really the only two big piles because we really only have, you know, so many payoffs in the deck. You know, the only the only super powerful cards are the poor, the peer, hidden strings, omniscience, and then those three that I just mentioned that see cards without drawing them. Sure. Post- Post board, you might go for um, you might go for blink of an eye to get a Narset off the table, or you might go for Alpine Moon or a Sweeper like Anger of the Gods or something like that. I, I'm just thinking of this because you mentioned Narset. Like, mm-hmm. what are the really big problems for the deck, and how good are your solutions to those? And and kind of like what should people be doing when they're trying to to beat this deck? I do remember. Uh, taking down a co-host of mine in the top eight of an IQ getting destroyed in game one and then games two and three just resolving Narset and protecting it and that was uh really really brutal uh and I I imagine it's similar now but you know over time you have to develop strategies to beat that particular card which is really good against this sort of deck absolutely so the first the biggest the most dangerous card ever damping sphere Sure. Yes. Two mana artifact. Um, if an opponent would, or if a land would be tapped for more than one mana, it produces colorless instead. And then it has attacks for however many spells you've cast that turn. That card's impossible to beat. We literally cannot win the game with it in play. Luckily, no one really plays it anymore because Lotus Field's not a huge force in the metagame. Um, mm-hmm. If you are, are in a place in the metagame, you know, if in the future Lotus Field's doing re- really well, people do start playing it. Um, we can load up on more copies of Wilt in the sideboard. We can load up on more copies of Blink of an Eye in the sideboard. And then obviously the Blast Zone is very good against that. Um, the Blast Zone is just kind of a catch-all for Narset's Damping Spheres. Used to be Rest in Peace when Underworld Breach was the win condition. Blast Zone is just a really great card. I think I would generally recommend if people are starting to put Damping Spheres in their sideboard, that's probably the weekend to take off of playing Lotus Field. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. The... um. My strategy for beating Damping Sphere is I pretend I do not see it. My yeah. opponents are not going to draw it. They don't have it in their deck. If they do, I'm going to lose. I'm not, you know, I'm not losing sleep over that. That's just that's just good beats. They just wanted it more. They did want it more. Exactly. So yeah. they didn't want to lose to my nonsense. Um, yep. I, I think I that, have played a lot of tournaments just assuming nobody would put a Leyline of the Void into play against me. So I, I think that's a sound strategy for certain types of decks. Hey, same. That's, you know, that's where I make my money is they don't have it. <laughs> now, some of the more common hate cards are like we talked about Narset. And you see the biggest way to fight that in um, the sideboard. I have recently tweeted a copy of my current list. So if anyone wants to see it, there's uh, there's a picture up there. Um, and, and at what Twitter handout <laughs> would they be able to find this tweet? Shameless plug, just at my last name, first name, at Malali Connor. 
is where I where I tweet about a lot of Lotus Field and some other magic things. But three or four copies of Mystical Dispute are almost always in my sideboard right now just because of how prevalent other blue decks are. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to resolve Narsa, make sure that you can protect it from, you know, slamming it on three is usually going to be good. But if you're playing it later in the game, have Mystical Dispute in mind. If you're playing Lotus against a blue deck, Narset is the most important card to counter with Mystical Dispute. You know, sometimes an opponent might fight over your cantrips or something like that. Try to hold Mystical Dispute up. And a way that I do that is that if I'm on the play, and say I just have the perfect, the perfects, where I go Botanical Sanctum, Land, Lotus Field, Thespian Stage, a lot of the time I won't play my Lotus Field on turn three. Because then I'm tapped out, my opponent can resolve a Narset, and I'm probably just going to be dead. What I do instead is I play Thespian Stage out. If they slam Narset, we can counter the Narset. If they don't play a Narset, but maybe we still think they have one, maybe we sandbag our Lotus Field, maybe we don't. But either way, they can't get that down on turn three. And then sometimes I'll cast a Fae of Wishes or I'll cast a Vizier just to put some pressure on it. Because a lot of times people will board out their removal against Lotus Field, you know, just not expecting you to play any creatures. And so if you are able to attack the Narset for one, it's a slow plan, but sometimes it works. I think that the, I think that the other biggest way to beat this deck is put pressure on it. And so what I lost to in the top four of my most recent PTQ was Yorion Fires. And that was a deck that pre-board really, really bad against Lotus Field. They have four copies of Narset, but other than that, not much else. The fastest clock they put on you is Essica's Chariot, which is a fast clock but doesn't kill until turn six or seven. Post-board, they transmogrify into Void Winnower, and if an opponent plays a Void Winnower against you, which says you can't cast even converted mana cost spells, I can't win the game anymore. You just have to have like the 1% draw to beat that. Was and this like a uh, enchantment-based uh, fires deck? Yes, exactly. So they're playing copies of the Raven's Warning. They have um, obviously... Omen of the Sea. This one wasn't playing Omen of the Sun. Their main ways to make tokens were um, Essica's Chariot, the Raven's Warning, and Shark Type. Something that came up, and I actually went back and rewatched the VOD with... Um, I, I work on this deck a lot with Will Kruger, a good friend of mine. We were in a, I was in a tight spot in Game 3 where I had one Mystical Dispute. I was on the play because Game 1 is free. And... I was like, I don't know if I should hold up Mystical Dispute for their Narset or save Mystical Dispute for their Transmogrify. And, you know, we were having to decide whether to play Thespian Stage or Lotus Field on turn three. And being able to put pressure on someone like that and just, like, really squeeze their answers, like, I only had one Mystical Dispute and have to hope that they don't have one of those two pieces. Right, because they, they can have two spells that just kill you, which is exactly you know, a vulnerability of playing a focus combo deck for sure. Exactly. And so playing things like that or playing things that are disruptive and put pressure on you, for example, the green-white company deck plays Archon of Emeria. So they're attacking you with their angels, but they also have this disruptive piece where you can't win the game if it's in play. So pressure plus disruption is really the way to beat this deck. Mm-hmm. Winota does a similar thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Winota will just freaking kill you. And sometimes <laughs> they might put an Archon of Emeria into play. Um, Burn does the same thing where our Goldfish is honestly just as fast as Burn. We can kill on turn four. They can kill on turn four. 
Eidolon of the Great Rebel, if that sticks in play, it gets a lot harder to win. As is tradition against Storm-type decks, Burn <laughs> just has, like, main deck hate pieces that uh, really make that matchup worse than you would think. Yeah, for sure. Cemetery Gatekeeper did not help but matters. <laughs> no. I That was my one loss in the Swiss of the, um, the PTQ a couple weeks ago was the Cemetery Gatekeeper Eidolon Mono Red deck. And I remember on the last turn of Game 3, I'm like, okay, I think I took care of... You know, I, I spent a couple of turns setting up a blast zone to make sure that I got their Eidolon. And then they played a Scab Clan Berserker. And I'm like, do you really have 12 Eidolons post-board? Oh, my me? God. <laughs> and then Scab Clan Berserker has Renown. And then when it hits you, it just does the same thing. And so it was like, this person did not want to lose to my nonsense. No, jeez. That's that incredible. Is, that, that is a deck that you can choose not to lose <laughs> to Jeskai Ascendancy or Lotus Field with, for sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, sometimes they, they play an Omnath and gain a bunch of life. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. So it's not it's not the it's not quite as good against the other deck as it is against Lotus Field, but yeah. Yeah, so Omnath good. definitely uh just changes the calculus for a lot of matchups like that. Um and, and I would say you know, that is one place where you know, that is one advantage that a combo deck like Jeskai Ascendancy has over a deck like Lotus Field, where Lotus mm -hmm. Field really doesn't have a juke. Like, your no. your only, like, juke is, instead of casting a billion spells this turn, I'll get a uh, an Ugin and play that instead. But yeah. it always relies on Lotus Field working. Yeah, so if you can find a way to attack the card Lotus Field, which Hexproof makes that very difficult... That, that can be a really good way to go. I don't know. Do you have any stories, any particular matches that are sticking out in your head from playing this deck? I know that that's, that is a lot of pressure. Anytime I get asked <laughs> a question like that, I like realize that I've never played a match of Magic the Gathering in my entire life. So maybe a little unfair to ask you that question. But If you, if you want to give me a minute, I, I guess I would say I don't have any particular stories from like games that are super interesting but just mm -hmm. more tournaments um mm -hmm. i'll say the feeling that you get when you nail the metagame with this deck and everyone's playing the omnath soup decks the phoenixes of the world the vampires in the you know in the old days a year ago it was wilderness reclamation i remember there was um the only tournament that i've won with this deck actually which was a showcase challenge some of my friends and I were just like, hey, we think Lotus Field's really well positioned. Um, let's give it a shot. You know, we tuned it for what we expected. We said, we're not going to play against Burn. We're not going to play against Damping Sphere. And then I looked back and I didn't. And when I made the top eight, you know, my friends and I had been like watching players, you know, throughout the day and like talking to people. And we were able to say, this top eight is just all mid-range nonsense, like soup decks, right? <laughs> just all trying to go over the top of each other. Like, we absolutely nailed it. And I remember looking at that and saying, okay, I need, like, the one Winota player to not... I need to dodge that player. But other than that, I'm just going to win this tournament. And then I remember going into the finals knowing that my opponent was on an Omnath Escape to the Wilds Genesis Ultimatum deck. And they asked if I'd like to split prizes. And I said, you know what? No, I think I have a favorable matchup. No, thank you. And then just won, like, really easily because... Looking back, we just nailed the meta game, and that's just the best feeling in the world with a deck like this. Yeah, I think right. this that moment that the way you can just nail meta games like that—that's yeah. the actual strength of this deck. It's not as going to be as reliable week to week as 
even like Jeskai Ascendancy, because mm-hmm. you can just tune it differently. Uh, but this deck is really polar, and that works against and for it. Like some decks just can't answer it at all. And if you no, nail a metagame like you were talking about, you're just going to cruise. Mm-hmm. As long as you you know put in the time, because the deck's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. Like I've put in a year and a half at this point, and even with that, like having put in over a year, there's still been weekends where I say, "This is not the time for Lotus Field. I'm going to play Jund in this PTQ." And then you know I I do medium. I go like five and four or six and three with Jund, very Jund record. <laughs> so like it's definitely not always the time but when it is the time and you're able to call that that's just there's no better feeling this is like a very non-specific question but any tips for playing against this deck that are a little more subtle than like play damping sphere or play narset like i'm thinking this is a little bit of a setup for me to tell an anecdote but hopefully it's like slightly useful uh and 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 then if you have anything to springboard off of that with, then I think that would be really helpful as well. But I'm thinking about Lee. I was watching you play, I mean the Underworld Breach version of this deck because that's the last time we played Pioneer in person. But I I was watching you play this, and I was watching an opponent playing Mono Black against you, and I looked at their hand. And I was like, that's a pretty good hand. It had the one drops, like it had the the what's its name, the one two that gets bigger, and then it had other threats, and it had Thoughtseize. Um, but then your opponent chose to lead turn one on Thoughtseize rather than a creature. And then I thought, like, wow, I think, like, Lee's opponent just chose to allow Lee to win this game. And by, like, not clocking you properly, they, like, gave you a full extra turn, basically, by not playing a two-power one-drop on turn one. And then you won the game from there in a way that maybe that extra couple of damage a turn would have made a big difference you know that's my one example of like oh wow knowing the matchup a little better would have let the opponent at least give themselves a better shot at winning this game and i don't know if there's anything you've seen from your side of the table connor that is similar to that from other people especially with like the current decks in the metagame Mm -hmm. and i think that that is a really great anecdote there chris that lets me kind of I don't have any specific tips. My my biggest thing is that I would say know Lotus Field's key turns. Know what they're trying to do on each turn of the game. So, for example, if you have an opponent who's on the play and they thought sees turn one, well, maybe they get your Sylvan scrying, but they could have done the same thing if they had just thought seized on turn two. Um, knowing when Lotus Field is going to do things on each turn of the game, for example, most of the time Lotus Field is going to Stage, copy, field on turn four, kill you on turn five. And so maybe you sandbag your thought season until turn four for that reason. But you know that if they have an Arboreal Grazer, then they can do all of that a turn ahead of schedule and they might be able to kill you on turn four. So knowing when they're going to be casting the key spells, the Sylvan Scryings, doing the stage copying. So for example, if your opponent on turn three just Sylvan Scryings for a Thespian stage and then plays Lotus Field know that you don't have to hold up counter magic on the next turn because they're probably just stage copying Lotus. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes they're going to have the nuts and you're going to die, but most of the time this deck really sticks to a script every turn. Like it can only do these two or three things on turns two and three. It can only do this on turn four. And you knowing that either from playing against the deck or goldfishing a little bit with it is going to be very valuable. Yeah. There are some like little sequence break turns mm-hmm. that can happen. You know, the 
I have played my Lotus Field and will untap with it next turn is the like main giveaway. Okay, something bad's gonna happen next turn. But yeah. if there's I have played my Thespian stage and I have a couple other lands, then depending on how many hidden strings they have in hand, they could top deck the Lotus Field and kill you from there. And that's a thing that you have to look out for. But that is more of a sequence break than like the normal play play pattern of the deck. Yeah, Absolutely. If the, and if they if they vary from that, that gives you something away too, right? Like mm -hmm. if I play a, a Vizier of Tumbling Sands just into play, that's mm -hmm. alarm bells for the opponent. Like, oh, uh, I see what's happening here. Yeah, <laughs> bad stuff is coming. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're a blue deck and you're post board and your opponent slows down for a turn, like doesn't play their Lotus Field as soon as possible and keeps leaving up blue mana, your Narset might not resolve. Be mindful of that. Yeah. Or maybe this Dovin's Veto should be tasked not with, like, I'm going to counter a pour over the pages with it, but, like, I'm going to figure out a way to use this Dovin's Veto to protect my Narset and try to yeah, get that in absolutely. play because it's so important. Absolutely. And I will say that generally speaking... Playing reactively is playing into this deck's hands. You actually want to play as proactively as your deck can allow you to. Yeah. Like, leave up your disruption when you can. But like Chris was talking about with the sequence breaks, where they have to have, like, three or four of the, the best cards in the deck, a lot of times you need to make them have that because it's not getting better for you by waiting. Put your pressure on. Make them have the upper 10 or 20% of their draws and beat them the rest of the time. Because this is a deck where you're not going to beat 100% of their draws ever. If they have their best draws, you will die. So make them have them. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the same as playing against Storm and Modern. It's just like, if they have a perfect... Like, you can't play as though they have a perfect hand because you're not beating that anyways. And nope. they're not going to have that that often. Let's see. What else should we talk about? We've kind of, like, ripped through all of my notes and... <laughs> And ideas for for what to talk about in a situation like this. I don't know what other thoughts do you have on the deck or the pioneer format or, you know, life in are general. You, what are you looking yeah, forward are you, to? Are you playing any of the SCG events? So at this point, I think that it would be an irresponsible decision for me to play in Philadelphia, and I say that because if I played in Philadelphia, I have plans to travel for the next three weekends and traveling four weekends in a row just would not be very fun. But I'm really excited to travel to all of the Nerd Rage events. Um, I'm based out of Ohio. And so most of those are about a five or six hour drive away from me, which is doable. And you know, a lot of my friends play those. They're a lot of fun, very well run tournaments. And then I am planning to be in both Indy, going to be teaming with um, Sky Warfield and Cedric Phillips, very excited for that. And then, of course, in Dallas. So, yeah, I'm very excited for S that SCG announced some tournaments. I'm also really excited to do some triathlons this year. Ooh. Family's going to come up to Milwaukee over the summer, watch me compete in um, sprint triathlon nationals. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And my semester's getting started back up, and I'm excited to, you know, it was nice to have a break over the holidays, spend a lot of time with my family. But I've been back in my apartment and back at work this week, and just getting back into a routine has been a lot of fun. What's your, uh, so I feel like everybody who does triathlons was either originally like a swimmer or a runner or like in very rare cases, a cyclist mm -hmm. originally, what's your, what's your triathlon origin sport? So I was a swimmer. Um, okay. I started swimming when I was in the fourth grade 
Michael Phelps had just won his eight golds in Beijing. And I was like, that guy's really cool. I want to do that. <laughs> and so I did it through all throughout middle school and then was a four-year high school swimmer. And coming into college, I was like, you know, I'm not good enough to swim D1. or Like I could have looked at like a D3 school or something like that. You know, some no-name schools in Maine sent me some letters. And I, I got, was like, you know. I got those too. <laughs> wasn't quite happening. Yeah. But I still really, you know, love being outside and love, you know, I'm not a very good runner, but I love biking and I still love swimming. And honestly, it got me through the early days of the pandemic where I would meet up with one or two buddies of mine. We would go jump in the lake um, or after a long day of classes, I would just go and ride my bike at the local state park because that's the only way I could get out of my house. And so I would do that and then I would come home and just play Lotus Field. (laughs) An idyllic life, to be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> Lee, anything anything else we should talk about? I don't know. I'm kind of tapped out. <laughs> should we, we, we blasted through everything. Yeah. I mean, we were just very efficient. We <laughs> tapped and untapped our lands, and we really got through all the important stuff here. We had to turn one no razor. No strings left unhidden. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What are you predicting for... For metagames, anything interesting that you think is going to happen at upcoming uh, NRG slash SCG tournaments? Any, you know, anything we should keep an eye out for? We're looking at a lot of modern. Keep an eye on Hammer Time. Hammer Time is mm-hmm. the place to be right now in my mind. Um, I remember there shocked. was a group of, group of my friends. Will Kruger converted us all. And there was a group of us who after round four, we had only lost to each other. And that was just like the (laughs) coolest feeling in the world. And so I'm predicting a little bit of a rise in the four color blink deck that a lot of people play at the championship in modern. Gotcha. Have you, I haven't seen Will talk about this. I haven't played attention to water in a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. but I know that there was a version rising with uh, blue cards and no Luris just to play Cauldra. That's right. You, um, yeah. What, do you so know I don't really have that or have thoughts. I don't really have any thoughts on whether or not it's good. Um, I think that the streamer Eyelash TV has been kind of pioneering that, no pun intended. Um, and today she tweeted out a list that had a copy of Luris in the main deck. And she said in some matchups, she was boarding out the expensive equipment, boarding out the Luris and still having Luris as the companion, which. <laughs> I don't know if that's good, but that's really sweet. That that's, that's just really like a cute, that's yeah. like a cool thing to do. I, see, I've also thought of the the hidden Luris, like you don't reveal game one, mm-hmm. and then in game two you can change your deck to yeah. reveal Luris. But in my drafts, I had always had the card in the sideboard because it's a little too expensive in the main deck. Yeah, uh, but um, that, that's neat that she had that idea. Yeah, definitely. And to be honest with you, I don't know if Spell Pierce is a because I think that Spell Pierce has been the main draw for blue. I don't know if that's a better card than Thoughtseize. Personally, I've been a big fan of Thoughtseize. Like, I bring it in against Hell. We bring it in against, like, Burn in addition to the control decks. It's just, like, a really good card for what we're trying to do. But I definitely think that Cauldra completes a really powerful card. And if people are trying to interact with you and make sure that you can't put hammers on things, well, just putting a Cauldra complete in play may be good enough. And maybe Luris is too slow right now. Is that like a deflecting palm consideration or or what's the what's the thoughts? Bingo. Okay. All right. Great. I still got it. I still have an idea of what's up. (laughs) He still knows what's up. (laughs) I I know the the card that has never left burn 75 (laughs) for the past like six years. 
to to me the the consideration for the the blue deck and actually the blue cards it's more of culture complete i think that card mm-hmm. is just so impressive mm-hmm. it gives the the hammer deck like a dimension added yeah. to it where all of a sudden you can just have a haste card or if you if they've broken up your pure still paladin or your and your culture completes just sitting there any pure still paladin you draw or put into play just has it a giant target now it yeah. just suits up immediately and gets to work and that's been really impressive for what i've seen or it suits something else up ideally yeah, you know gives, gives yeah. makes your ornithopter a cauldra and and that's that's good stuff yeah, and like before your plan for beating those matchups where like they would answer your plan A, they would make sure you didn't get to put a hammer on anything was you have Urza Saga. But now it feels like everyone's got a plan for your Urza Saga. Everyone's yeah, packing everyone's some dress like downs or something. Yeah, four exactly. dress downs and yeah. So a little bit of a testament to that just how good Urza Saga is, I I would say. <laughs> I agree. So, I mean, this has operated really well as a trailer for next week in which uh we will be having Will Kruger on to talk about Hammer in oh, the let's go. So, you know, you could the, not, you uh, could not get someone better to talk about modern. That's uh, that was kind of my my thought process as I was typing out the DM. So, uh, <laughs> that should be a pretty good episode. And then we will pretty soon after that be taking some time off of guest episodes because it'll be spoiler season, which we can we can pretty much handle on our own. We can we can take care of that. Connor, this was a ton of fun, so I, I really, really appreciate you stopping by, and I'm really looking forward to kind of honing this format and uh, continuing to do stuff like this. Uh, I, I I don't know. I'm excited. Excited about 2022 on the MTG Grindcast. You know, Pioneer is my favorite format. Lotus Field's my favorite deck in Magic right now, and I appreciate you guys giving me the chance to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Of course. No, you, were, you were great. We, we are super happy to have you and if y'all especially uh chris and connor are interested in like learning more about different decks in pioneer the 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 jarvis stream i alluded to much earlier in the podcast is a really good watch uh because dom has jarvis on and they talk about the deck uh desk ascendancy and then go through all his matches of the tournament he won it's really really good content if you're interested in just like learning more about the pioneer format that's yeah i probably will tune into that and yeah, I would. I think that probably that's good for any of our listeners who are trying to get a start on the format too. That sounds like a great place to kind of get into it. Thanks everybody so much for listening. We do really, really appreciate your time. Connor, you've got a guide out for anybody who wants to get a little more in depth onto the Lotus Field stuff. You know, this was a taste, but a podcast can't quite communicate everything that gets put into a written guide. So how can people get access to that and uh, anything else that you want to plug? Yeah. So I recently announced on my Twitter, uh, which is at Malali Connor, um, that I'll be starting to offer Lotus Field coaching here. And going along with that coaching, I wrote up a guide. And so if you sign up for coaching, you'll get the guide along with that. Or if you just want to buy the guide on its own, send me a message. That's the option that most people have taken so far. Um, other than that, please check out um, my sponsor, RIW Hobbies and Mana Traders. They're the reason that I'm able to do what I do and play all of the tournaments that I can, and I appreciate them a lot. So if you'd like to hear me talk about, you know, I tweet a lot about Modern and Pioneer, so let's yeah, talk about magic. <laughs> I, yeah, Connor, Connor is a solid follow, just kind of no-nonsense, here is magic stuff, and uh, 
Those are kind of the accounts that I find the most useful on Twitter, so. You will not see any discourse from me, just <laughs> just decklists. Just pure information. I can't resist the discourse. I'm sorry. <laughs> me, me neither. I'm one of the more useless accounts on this website, so. <laughs> so, again, thanks for listening. We do really appreciate your time. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, I'm tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I'm at Lee McLeo. Uh, if you want to toss us some support, we would really appreciate that. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. You can help us fund getting guests in the future. We don't ask people to come on and donate their time. We, we make sure to compensate them, and uh, help doing that is always appreciated. But other than that, thanks so much, everybody, and have a great week. Sign us off, Connor. Well, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>